So today I'm joined with Dr. Abbott, who is a professor at the University of Connecticut of Biological Sciences. Do um, you want to give yourself a quick intro, doctor? Yeah. Uh, hello, everyone. <laughs> um, I'm here with Aaron. He, he wanted to uh, ask me some questions, and we've already been previously discussing uh, some of that. Um, I teach the 1107 at UConn. I've been doing it now for a number of years, but I also teach some more advanced courses as well for my department in molecular and cell biology. Um, my love is teaching. I do enjoy it, but I love science as well. Um, and, and basically in terms of where I've been, I've always been immersed in this. Uh, sometimes students ask me, have you always been disinterested in biology? And I've always responded by, I was born interested in biology. I never questioned it. I didn't have those, fortunately, those moments in my life where I wasn't sure what I wanted to do or what I wanted to be. I've always loved the study of life. I continue to, be, to marvel at it. And, 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 and it's just, I, I don't know. I guess I was just lucky in that regard. Obviously, I have other interests as well. I do. Um, but I do, there's just something about this thing called the cell that I just, I, it just, I just can't get away from it. I just, I love the way it works. It's engineering, how things are put together. And then we see these functions, this functionality that, that emerges. I just, I don't know. I just can't, uh, it's, I've never questioned it. I have never questioned it. So anyway, that's who I am. Yeah, I think it's definitely interesting in how complex we are, yet everything like works, you know? Everything is working for some reason to make humans live who we are, to function properly. But, and, and you look at each specific cell, you look at the organs, you look at the organ system and how everything's working together and how complex each part of that organelle is or each cell is. And it's, it's crazy how complex we are. And I, I don't know if a lot of people really take time out of their day to really think about like what, how many things are going on in your body at the same time at this very second and those complex processes and metabolic activity and even cognitive uh, abilities too that are going on. It's, it's fascinated me this past year um, and these past two years really. Um, and I just, I love it too. It's very interesting to just see how everything works together, but like, it's crazy how complex it is. I, I've asked, I had a conversation with um, a postdoc researcher at Princeton. He, he does um, research on a particular enzyme called IDO1. Um, and I asked him, do you, do you ever just um, take a step back and be like, whoa, like this is crazy how complex it is and how everything is working together. Like, does it ever wow you? And he's like, no, like it all makes sense how like everything works together. But I, I have a different stance on it. I, I think it's, it's incredible like how complex everything is and like, I'm wowed by it. Um, I don't know if you, you've obviously been um, studying um, science and biology for a while now. Do you, yeah. do you ever get tired of, do you ever, I guess, lose that like wow factor or do you, are you still marveled by it? 
yeah, I, I guess, Aaron, you know, that's my point. I, I feel, I do feel lucky. I, I do. I, I, I always, every day, I know it sounds, oh yeah, right, really. No, no. And I, yes, and I do understand that sometimes a sodium atom, as a graduate student once reminded me, is, is just a sodium atom. I, I, I understand that. I do. I get that. And I mention that to my students routinely. But no, I, I don't. I, I see all aspects of life as, as interesting. I certainly like certain areas more than others in terms of study and things of that. You know, you, everybody sort of creates their own niche, right? Mm -hmm. But when I do step back and I just, I do marvel, you know, I think many, many people, for, for a host of reasons, all of which are very understandable, forget or maybe never quite get to that area where they realize that level they go, wow, life has had an amazing impact on this planet, on the non-living matter. See, we don't, we don't think of life that way, as having that sort of influence, you know? And I think, in part, that sometimes is a problem, because then I think it's hard for some people to understand things like climate change, because they don't see how life can influence that. In other words, there's this big disconnect because they've never seen how life actually can influence that and routinely has. You know, a, a lot of times when you're young, you may remember I had to learn about glaciation, right? Well, it's hard to imagine that good portions of this planet were covered in sheets of ice over a mile thick at various times in the Earth's history. But have you ever, when you were sitting in those classes as a young, uh, young person, did you ever stop and just wonder and imagine, well, why? Why don't we have glaciations now? You know, what's changed? Has the earth changed its distance from the sun? You know, um, has it, you know, gotten further away and that's why it got colder and now it's come back and it's gradually getting warmer? You know, what actually, you know, we just sort of accept it. But what you don't make the link, is, I wonder if life, had something to do with that, you see? Because life produces CO2. That's the other thing that we need to understand. We sort of think of this global warming as just an effect of, of what we do in terms of burning fossil fuels and things of that nature, all right? And then in that process, releasing carbon and, and, and water at the most basic level of the reaction. Remember, we're spewing out CO2, every one of us, because we're building it internally. Every time we create an oxidative phosphorylation cascade, we're producing CO2, all right? And, and to get us to that, I should say, remember your citric acid cycle that, that everyone has to memorize, all right? Pyruvate processing, we're making CO2. Some of that we're, we're sequestering, for later use as, for example, in the production of carbonic acid, all right, or as a bicarbonate ion for different reasons, but primarily as a source of the carbonate for a buffer, all right? But, but the point is, we're making CO2 and we're breathing it out. So every living thing is contributing to CO2 in our atmosphere, not just the burning of fossil fuels, but remember, when you burn glucose, that's what you're doing. Glycolysis, you're breaking down glucose to its constituent molecules. You're trying to get at 
that necessary energy, right? That you want to use to then build a, a complex molecule called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. Well, remember, all right, in the process of doing that, those, those reactions are producing CO2 and water. Remember, water is that final electron acceptor, and it's reduced in the formation of water. So we're breathing that out. That contributes to the overall CO2 in the atmosphere. At the same time, we have this thing that comes along called plants, or in a more primitive state, all right, our algae in different levels of structure and physiology, all right, which are capable of harnessing, all right, light energy, okay, in the production of a more complex carbohydrate. Well, they sequester CO2. So you get into this relationship, right, between photosynthetic and non-photosynthetic organisms on a routine basis. But again, look at the, look at the, the I was going to say significance, but the influence that just photosynthesis has had on our planet. All right, remember, life in general has a huge impact on our planet, not just in the sense of what we classically think, but it can affect even weather patterns. I mean, there's so much that life has done in the creation of what we're accustomed to, what we're used to seeing, all right? And so I think, I think it would be helpful then and then, and so that wow factor that I see is because I, I, I guess I'm always trying to get to those levels of understanding. How is it working? What is it actually doing when we build CO2, for example, when we construct CO2 and we release it into the environment? How does a plant sequester that same CO2 and actually create a more complex carbohydrate such as glucose? I mean, I, I don't know. I just... To me, that's, that's interesting, all right? But I also think that when you get to that level of understanding, you start to realize the impact that life has had on this planet and will always have, all right, in terms of what, but, we, but we, I think we look at it at the macro level often, and oftentimes we don't, we don't notice that, those subtleties, all right, how things change. For example, you look at a field all right, well over 150 years ago, anywhere you were standing on a hill in Connecticut, you could see as far as you wanted. It was all fields. It was all mostly farmland and some of your more uh, smaller concentrated urban centers. That was it. And then as farming disappeared, all right, as we moved on, those fields lay fallow. Now look where they are, they're forests. I mean, most people look at their forests in their backyards or when they're driving across the state of Connecticut, New England in general, they go, oh, that must be really old. No, they're not. On average, those trees are between 70 and 80 years old, one generation of human beings. That's it. But you say, but they're so big, they're so huge. That's how fast life can change an immediate environment. And we then think, oh, it's been there forever. Actually, no. But look at the change in that system. You've gone from a grassland to a mature forest, and it even gets better than that. But it's just, but we, we tend to think of these things as long-term. No, you can see huge changes in a very, and look at the change that that forest has now brought to that region, all right? So I, I think, yes, it, it, for me anyway, 
it's always been just, I've just been interested. I'm also interested in mechanics in general, how all things work, you know what I mean? So that's probably helpful, you know, whether it's a machine, an automobile, for example, or for example, how does a cell work? So I, I guess I'm not being completely honest here. I enjoy figuring out how things work. I did not know that Connecticut was grassland before. That's really interesting. But I'm not from Connecticut originally, so um, that's I always I thought it was always forest. Um, no, it was pasture. We cleared it many many years ago. Those early immigrants that came here, they cleared it. They removed the forest. That's why you see all the stone walls. Those stone walls. Every year, the family got out in the early spring. Right now, before they planted. Any new rocks that were exposed, they grabbed them, walked them over to the edges of the field, and dropped them. And that's where all these walls came from. All right, that's why you see all these stone walls. And you're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. Some of those stone walls go down six to eight feet in the ground. And wow. that is slowly built up over time. Oh yeah, I mean, there's a whole history here. And, and, and we just think, oh, it's always been trees. No. <laughs> Very little of it was trees. We, we used them for firewood, for heat, all right, and building. And so, again, but what happens when you remove all those trees? Well, remember, they were sequestering CO2 in the air every year to stay alive. You know, that's one of the reasons why we're concerned about other parts of the world where you have these still large stands of trees. That's why you see these new initiatives to plant trees not just grasses, but trees, because they sequester CO2. It's a beautiful system. They, what we call carbon neutral, they remove that carbon from the atmosphere, all right, and they store it, all right, for later use. And so, again, there's these cool relationships that are set up, but we have to start, we have to step back and understand it hasn't always been this way, you know? And how has that influenced that region? You know, we're living things too. We influence regions. We built stone walls, <laughs> you know, and then we left them behind. And so when you walk through the woods in New England, you see these stone walls. That was a farm at one time. There were probably horses and cattle and pigs walking around, you know, children playing. It was, you know, it's just, that's, it was a totally different way of life than you see today. And we've moved on. You know, well, life moves on too. And what you're seeing now will change. Nature will make sure of that. We're talking right. about the mechanics of different things and how things different work, how things um, work differently um, in light of the current um, pandemic. Mm -hmm. I'd like to understand the mechanics behind um, the coronavirus and what is actually going on on a mm -hmm. biological level and molecular level. Okay, well, and again, you brought up an interesting point because I've been, you know, watching some of the news, you know what I mean? And yeah. you go back and forth and, you know, and again, you know, th things are coming out slowly, you know, well, we're, we may be developing vaccines and blah, 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 or some sort of intense, very effective therapeutic. But what I found interesting in a lot of what we call, not necessarily by going online and looking at some of the news blogs or looking at other blogs, right? But just the standard cable news, 
and you watch reporters and journalists and physicians and nursing staff and others interact, right, in these, in these discussions and these short bits on what's it like to be in the ER right now, you know, that kind of thing. But what's interesting is I've watched quite a bit of it now at times because I'm trying to stay ahead of this. I'm an old man. I mean, this is a killer. This is a killer, you know? My wife and I, we can't take this lightly. And so, you know, we've been trying to grab as much as we can. But what's interesting is it occurred to me the other day, you know, no matter how much I've been looking at Aaron over the last few weeks, I haven't had one, I haven't seen one actual, um, uh, you know, like short uh, uh, show or, you know, like a, a town hall, right? Where they actually have someone come in and show you what they're doing in the lab to try and develop an antibody test or to try and develop a vaccine. So we've been brought into hospitals, we've been brought into businesses, we've been brought, if you see where I'm going with this. Yeah. But we're not, we haven't been brought into a lab, all right? Those people right now are working around the clock with very sophisticated technologies and techniques. We could be showing that to people. How about a town hall where you spend a half hour in a lab? You know, I know a lot of it is proprietary. You know what I mean? You got to be careful because it's competitive and right. these are businesses at the end of the day. Yeah. Why not, why not take us in? This is actually how we're, we're actually testing. This is the equipment we're using. Oh, by the way, here's a PCR machine. Oh, well, we use this because we've got to amp up, you know, we've got to magnify, amplify, not magnify. We've got, well, basically that, but amplify a certain amount of a nucleic acid that might be within the context of these, this coronavirus. The coronavirus that we're dealing with right now uh, they sequenced it, and memory serves me correct, it's between 26,000 and 27,000 nucleotides long. It's a single-stranded RNA, all right? So that's how long it is, okay? But you can't just work with one molecule. So we've got to, amp but you know, why not show America, the world, what these people are actually doing in the context of a lab? What are they actually doing to try and, and you know, or, how do we develop a vaccine? What, you know, maybe take us through the steps in a lab that get us to possibly an effective vaccine. You don't see that, all right? I haven't seen anything on what exactly the coronavirus is doing because we say to everybody, it has this high infectious rate. Well, what does that mean? Well, it, it's, it's infecting me. Okay, um, how is it infecting <laughs> Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, in, it's going into my lungs and it's, it's creating a fever, but what is it actually doing? Yeah. You know, most people don't, couldn't tell you. Why not show them? All right. How about a town hall where they bring in some scientists, you know, and some physicians and say, okay, here's a model of the lung, right? Now we're going to go under greater magnification and resolution and show you the model of a coronavirus, COVID-19, because there are different types. This is what happens when you breathe it in, all right? This is what it looks for. This is where it heads. And oh, by the way, it needs a host. And then you have somebody from the audience go, well, what's a host? You see what I mean? Well, 
It's a cell in the alveolus. What's an alveolus? I mean, what a golden opportunity here to show the world, that world, the molecular world, you know? And then, so when you, so now when the person walks away from that TV or that computer or whatever the case may be, the medium under which it was shown, maybe they'll have a, a greater appreciation and understanding for what it takes. You know, because all we do is we say, well, the scientists are gonna get us, okay, but what are they actually doing? Do you know what I mean? What are they actually doing? Show them. And so what's happening is, to, to be brief about it, to make a short story long, man, what happens is COVID-19, all right, you, you can bring it into your, you, in other words, you have to bring it into you, all right? So there has to have a way in. It could come in, for example, potentially through a wound, all right, an open wound, but you've got to bring it into a, an area where it needs a host. And for the most part, although there are some now new potentialities here, but in, from what we have initially seen, the host becomes the lung tissue. So cells within the context of the lung obviously become what we call the host. But now ask someone, how do you become a host to a virus? What does that mean to be a host to a virus? Well, as you guys know from going through your, your coursework, it means that the virus needs to find an appropriate receptor because remember a virus is not at the level of what we would call a classic living thing it's missing the machinery actually even necessary to make more of itself all right so a virus is going to have to find a living thing because living things have the machinery to make more of themselves so the idea behind this virus is if i can attach myself to something that's capable of making more of itself, maybe I can hijack it into making more of me. And so there's what they do. It's a beautiful, a, a beautiful plan, all right? So all I need to do is be able to get my nucleic acid, which remember, that contains the directions for making more of you. All I need to do is get that into something, which then will take those directions and build more of me. That's what viruses do. They pass from the outside. Once they find an appropriate receptor, that's what makes them host specific. If they cannot find a re necessary receptor that will enable them to inject the nucleic acid into you, then they can't do it. They can't infect that tissue or that cell. Unfortunately for COVID-19, our lungs have the receptor. And so when they get into the lung tissue, they're able to seek out the cell membrane, locate that specific receptor, bind. And what's interesting about this is the act of binding enables them, all right? That triggers an apparatus in the virus that enables it under pressure, all right, to push its nucleic acid through the phospholipid bilayer and let it enter the cell. All right, now, yeah.
Do you know what that receptor is usually used for? The receptor could be used in us for any number of things. It could be, for example, a self, not a receptor at all. It could be a self ID molecule. In other words, anything that we might be using in some, in some way for a physiological process of that tissue or that organ, all right? It could be a glycoprotein, okay? Or a specific receptor that we might use to move molecules from one side of the membrane to the other. There's a host of what we call potential receptivity that can take place. But a virus has to be able to identify that, relate to it, and bind to it. But once it has, that then sets up this cascading of events for the infection. Because okay. aren't, aren't receptors very specific to whatever they are used for? So they like, are. They are. But a virus can hijack that. So it doesn't have, it could just, it doesn't have to be a certain shape to. Well, it does have to be a certain shape. It has to have, it's looking for a certain geometry in that plasma membrane. But that geometry doesn't have to be something it can, in, in other words, we may be using that geometry to perform another function. You follow right. me? Yeah. They're just yeah. using it as an anchor. Right, and my question is what, they combine. my question is do we know what that other function is that we usually use that particular? Oh, in the case of COVID, yeah, I think we do. I think they've identified I haven't looked into that yet, to be honest with you, but I think they've identified at least, I think there may be at least one or two, I'm not sure, don't quote me on that, but, but they've identified what those are, yes. And so we're not surprised that, that it then looks for lung tissue, you see okay. what I mean? Yeah. So yes, they, they have identified what those are. As a matter of fact, in just in terms of in case we, you know, we don't move to what a vaccine actually is in this context, all right? Um, the virus isn't looking for the entire receptor. Much, it, it can actually look for just certain motifs or shapes that are part of the receptor. You see what I mean? Yeah. It's the same thing, and this is one of the reasons why I'd like us to, to go into a lab and have people show you how you know, what, what is the logic behind a vaccine? Because what we're attempting to do now and what we've done is a lot of the labs that are working on a vaccine, what they've actually done is they've looked at, remember, a virus is, 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 is complex, it is cool, but certainly not as complex as a cell might be or as a tissue might be or an organ. And so they, they have this capsid right, a protein, this protein complex, which surrounds a nucleic acid. It can either be a DNA or an RNA, all right? And so if we're now talking about a protein complex, right, that then suggests that there are different proteins that have different shapes and regions, which we call motifs. Well, all right, what if in COVID-19, we can find a particular protein that's part of the capsid of this virus that it needs to actually be COVID-19, if you understand what I just said. 
meaning without this protein, it couldn't exist. Yeah. All right. It's highly unlikely then that that protein and the gene that encodes for it in that viral DNA or RNA, all right, has a, you know, a single-stranded RNA, all right, would mutate on a routine basis. Because remember, this is a, an integral part of the actual capsid. The last thing you want to do is routinely change that because now the virus may become non-functional. So what they first do when searching in developing vaccines is they try to search for a region in the virus that has been estimated to be highly conserved from a structural perspective and will probably not routinely change over time. That's the first thing you look for. They believe they have found that region. And there's another reason why they do that. Because remember, you, all right, everybody hears things like, well, how mutable is it? Does it, you know, is it capable of changing very quickly? But remember, that won't matter if that protein is still incorporated in that, that new virus. You see what I mean? Yeah. All you have to do is hope you've isolated a protein or a region of a protein, right? A motif or domain okay, that doesn't or is not expected to change. Now, okay, develop, okay, in this context, right, what you hope you can then do, all right, is teach the body, which would be when you inoculate the vaccine into someone, you hope then that that system will then identify that region and then initiate a what we call adaptive immune response. All right, so in other words, it'll produce antibodies that are specifically designed, all right, to, to bind just to that region of the capsid, that specific protein, that region, and dismantle, disarm the virus. All right, that's what you're hoping. Okay, and if the more, the closer you can get to, to, to doing that, the better off that vaccine is going to be uh, over time, because that means even if the virus slightly changes and mutates, our bodies will still have the appropriate antibody to go after it and dismantle it. See, that's the beauty behind a vaccine in this context then you don't have to worry about it changing as much over time because whatever changes it makes, our systems will, will have the, the antibody to destroy it because it hasn't changed that one region. All right, so that's one reason why this is so, you know, this, this development now is so important because what they're racing to try and do is, all right, is try and induce, in other words, in culture, all right, the production of antibodies that specifically address those highly conserved, expected highly conserved regions. If we can do that, then you now move on to the next trial that's moving it into a, an organism and see if you can do the same thing that you've done in vitro, in culture. Can you induce that organism to produce antibodies 
that specifically bind to that region of the capsid in that virus. All right, so it's kind of cool how that, that's why I say this is a cool story. And I think people would like that, you know, that yeah. they So that's what's going on. All right, so if you can, and, and the cool thing about it is remember, if you can bind many, many antibodies to this region, then that impedes its ability to bind to a cell. And if it then cannot bind as a virus to the cell, it cannot initiate an infection. You see, you've just disarmed it by coating it with antibodies, all right? And so every time you know, the virus enters your system, let's say you're reinfected, you'll have this host of antibodies already circulating in you. They'll immediately bind to it and isolate it so that it no longer can become infectious. It's kind of cool. So the next thing though, remember, and what they're worried about is, let's say, and they have, they have identified this conserved region and they are, and it is responding in vitro. That information now is out. And actually some individuals have already taken a vaccine and they're running a trial with these individuals to see they're testing their blood on a, I think it's a weekly basis or a monthly basis to see whether they're responding in the, with, with respect to their own immune systems, whether they're responding to the production of antibodies. All right, specifically to this region of this virus. That's what they're, they're hoping, all right? And so those are in trial now. They actually have human beings that have volunteered to do this, okay, for everyone else, for the world, basically, all right? But the other thing that you have to keep in mind is, all right, yes, we might have our system marshal a defense, create antibodies, but then how long do these antibodies last in our system? Has it encouraged the production of memory cells? That's another aspect of our adaptive immune system. In other words, cells that have a memory about, in other words, more specifically in the case of their cells, there are cells in our immune system, uh, white blood cell line, the B cells that actually produce antibodies. But you have memory cells that are capable of producing similar antibodies, right? They call them memory cells. Well, they circulate in an active form. And then, in the, then when, when they come in contact with this actual virus, in this case, later on with an initial or second or tertiary infection, all right? Antibodies are then released that then seek out and just, and, and just basically, in other words, keep this virus from becoming infectious. So, so the idea is, it, yes, we've given some people a vaccine. We're gonna monitor their progress and see if they create antibodies. But how long do those antibodies last? Do they last a week? Do they last a month? Do they last a year? You see what I mean? How long am I going to have this, what we call immunity now, to future infections of that virus? You see, that's the other part and that's why when you hear people say, well, we're about 1.5 or two years away from an effective virus, it's because they have to allow time, all right? How long is this going to give us an immunity for, okay? 
you hope for a very long time. You know, typically your vaccine regimen that you get as a child lasts a lifetime. You see what I mean? In other words, you've built up an immunity that if you're infected again with the measles or you're infected again with smallpox, if you ever are, uh, we hope not, all right, that you'll have a memory still present in your body to attack it the minute it tries to infect you. See, that's how that all works. So just saying we're gonna develop an effective vaccine, now ask yourself, what is an effective vaccine? Well, it's one A that causes you to produce a lot of antibodies very quickly, all right? That's part of being effective. And you hope that that vaccine also is very specific in what it targets and can be used on the same virus in case it changes a little bit over time. In other words, it can still deactivate that virus, even though the virus has changed uh, in terms of some of its composition. And how about longevity? All right. And so there are a number of different factors, but that's, that's what we're doing in terms of at a molecular level. That's what you have to do. That's what the vaccine causes us to do, all right? And so all of these companies are work, that's what they're doing. That's, that's the level of competition where we're at, is who can get at that most highly conserved protein, who's lucky enough to find it, who can use that protein in the context of a vaccine, place it into a body, and get that body to create antibodies to that specific protein, right? Now, if that works and those antibodies are long lasting, we've got a great solution going down the road to COVID-19, all right? Whoever comes up with that, it's gonna be, you know, that's what you need, but that's how it happens. And so basically, if the virus infects you in your lung tissue, what it's done is it's injected its RNA into the cell. The RNA then immediately, all right, hijacks the host machinery and starts building viruses. So the cell itself becomes the host. It starts actually constructing more COVID-19. In fact, so many that the cell eventually lyses. It breaks apart. Now all of those viruses can move out into our body, more specifically into adjacent lung tissue, and do the same thing that the other ones did with that previous infection. And so it just escalates from there. All right. And then our body is also marshalling, remember, a number of immune responses. One of them is an innate swelling. That's, a, that's an innate immune response. Problem is when the lungs swell, they don't allow us to exchange gases as readily as the lung tissue swells. That's one of the reasons why if it's con it continues, then you have to be placed on a ventilator. Now the ventilator does the breathing for you. You see what I mean? Because your lungs are so filled with fluid and swollen that they can't, the alveolus, that all that's immersed in, the alveoli cannot create that gas exchange between your blood, the alveolus, and the outside environment. 
And so that's why you then have to be put on a ventilator. But the reason why ventilators uh, don't work as well as we would assume is because the lung tissue just gradually gets more and more inflamed and, and more compromised. So even with a ventilator, you can't move enough oxygen in to make the exchange and move enough CO2 out to make the exchange for when you exhale. And so that's when it gets very troubling for the, for the individual person or patient. And so th this is serious, all right? Um, also, during an innate immune response, all right, remember, you're gonna have what we call, if you guys remember back, you know, in some, some of your earlier training, that cell signaling, you had that paracrine signaling, right? And so paracrine signaling is localized. So you start secreting molecules that, to other cells adjacent to you, which then signal those to release molecules. Well, that's, that initiates, for example, a swelling response. It also initiates a fever. All right, that's why these people are experiencing fevers as well. Well, those are innate immune responses. That's quote unquote natural. The part that is baffling us right now, which will be resolved, is that in a lot of people, all right, this innate response goes out of control. Too much swelling, too much fever, and the, it's almost like it's analogous to, but we'll see what finally comes out with respect to the data, an autoimmune response. In other words, our immune system actually starts destroying our lung tissue because of this overreaction, this cascade, this signaling system. And so that is a real problem because now lung tissue is being, is being damaged and scarred, which then automatically reduces your ability to exchange gases with the outside environment and the body itself, all right, with respect to oxygen, CO2. So this is, this is where it's kind of, you know, these are the dynamics that, you know, our healthcare workers are working. This is what they all work with, they see. But at the molecular level, this is what, what is actually going on. All right, so this virus is, is interesting. And it's also now we're starting to see other potential downsides to this infection. You've probably heard about complications with the heart, complications with the kidney, complications with the liver, and some people now are, are, are expressing that they have uh, complications with their minds. In other words, they're experiencing, um, in other words, uh, moments where, you know, forgetfulness, things of this nature, or, um, and so again, you know, they lose their sense of, of smell, they lose their sense of taste. You know, so it's getting interesting, but this virus has a lot of variability in terms of apparently how it can affect a person, a human being, but that's what it's doing at the molecular level. So is uh, it only affecting um, lung tissue cells? Well, this is the other problem, right? Because now you ask the question, well, wait, if, if some patients are experiencing cardiovascular problems, heart problems, or kidney problems. Is it because those organs suddenly are not getting enough oxygen? You see what I mean? So therefore, remember, kidney is second only to the brain in terms of oxygen demand. That's the bottom line, all right? Their kidneys are expensive, all right? That's just the way it is. They require a lot of oxygen a lot of the time. Well, if they're not getting it, 
then they go and, you know, they can start to be compromised. What we call in extreme cases, renal failure, right? They just break down. Well, so the argument then is, and this is another question that will come out eventually, as they see more and more of these, these patients and then they, you know, they die, you know, they document what's going on physiologically, eternally. That's another question. Is it because the virus has suddenly able to also use these organs as a host for infection? Or is it because these organs are suffering because of the, you know, their need for certain oxygen concentrations? You see what I mean? In our blood, for example. And since we're not able to deliver that, this is what's going on. Um, in fact, one of the newer techniques that they're trying now, and, it, and they've been very successful, in some of these severe cases where they've more or less given up hope, the ventilator isn't going to work anymore, they're actually infusing oxygen directly into their circulation. This is the newest technique. So basically they hook your venous system all right, up to an oxygen tank and they allow a certain proportioned amount of oxygen to enter directly into your blood. So like dialysis, kind of. Exactly, just like dialysis, they're bypassing the lung tissue altogether because they're just saying, well, look, for the, for, for the moment, that's just not helping us. Do you know what I mean? So let's just get the oxygen to all the tissues in the body via this oxygen tank, this external tank. And I think it's a smart move. Uh, and it's had a lot of success so far in handling those extreme cases where the ventilator just seems to not be doing it anymore. So we're, we're gradually learning how to manage this. You know what I mean? Yeah. But at the but, and, and in terms of, you know, from diagnosis to treatment, but at the molecular level, that's what's going on. So you talked about the autoimmune response in the lungs. Um, and how that is causing some issues. Are those issues long-term? We don't know. In Do you think it cases, would be? In some cases, some patients have taken over a month to recover. I mean, can you imagine having a low-grade fever for four weeks? There are actually people that are experiencing that. And so, yes, they are not long-term in terms of years because we don't know yet but certainly long term in terms of the healing the expected healing rate has been exaggerated in some patients i mean you don't normally we, we sometimes normally think of that as well that's kind of what happens that's expected but in some people this is this is being extended beyond what we consider the average for that infection and it may very well be that this innate immune response is still being triggered for an excessive amount of time. Yes, this, this immune response. All right. And, so correct me if I'm wrong, but okay. most of the time when we do get sick with these viruses and such, our body kind of creates its own antibodies after, and then we create our own immunity um, to combat it. Um, which is why you can only get like chicken pox once and so on. Right. So is that same thing happening with this particular virus? Are we making our own antibodies or is that not happening? Yes. We are making our own. But this is an important question, Aaron. Are they going to last? What's their shelf life? 
you see? Do they last a month in us before they have to be replaced? Or can they last years? The reason why you only get chicken pox once is because you build enough antibodies in that initial infection and they can last a lifetime in you. You see what I mean? So their shelf life is extended. We don't know with COVID what the shelf life of these antibodies are, but yes, we are making antibodies, all right, to COVID-19. But this is important. The other thing you need to ask yourself, because this is a legitimate question, right? Have we ever developed a vaccine for HIV? And the answer is no. But now ask yourself, well, why not? It's a virus, why not? You see, here's the other problem with an effective vaccine. Yes, you may get your body to develop, in other words, antibodies to it, but you still can't predict the rate and the intensity of that response in that production of antibodies. The problem with HIV in terms of a vaccine is that HIV has the ability, has this latent infectious ability to quote unquote sneak in, go under the radar, slowly become infectious and then explode. The problem is how do you develop a vaccine to that? Because you see, you can give a person a vaccine and say, this is a vaccine for HIV. But when you give it to them, if they don't respond, if their immune system doesn't respond to it the way you had hoped, then it may not build any antibodies. You see what I mean? Now, where are you? It can't be used as a vaccine. The biggest problem we have with HIV is when it enters a human being, it doesn't, our immune system does not marshal enough what we call of an intense response, the production of antibodies, the production of memory cells, cytotoxic T cells, you see what I mean? B cell lines, T cell lines, we don't do it. And so it goes undetected until it's too late. And so again, it, you know, viruses, depending upon their capabilities, have this particular problem. We're finding out whether COVID is going to behave like that or not. We can say we it has, in other words, produced antibodies, but what if it hasn't causes our immune system to produce enough? You see what I mean? Now, what do we do? Well, maybe we have to create boosters. That's why we have boosters for some vaccines. We got to generate more and more and more. We have to build you up to a, what we call optimal level of antibody production. So it may be that it won't be, in other words, we'll, we'll need a booster regimen. So we'll do it once, you'll build up, we'll hit you again, you'll build up, you see what I mean? So there'll be this, what they call a booster, vaccination booster regimen to try and get you up to a level. Because the first round, your body doesn't respond as well as you had hoped. You know what I mean? It's just the nature of that virus. It doesn't induce that in us, that level of activation. And that's just the way it is. Um, that's, for example, one of the problems with tuberculosis. Tuberculosis is a bacteria. 
But when it enters our bodies, it has a cloaking device that it puts around its cell wall, a protein coat, which mimics what we look for. In other words, self versus non-self, unfortunately. So tuberculosis can typically move into our bodies, just go right under the radar with respect to our immune response, move right into our lung tissue, set up shop and infect, and then it's too late. That's why tuberculosis is such a serious organism in terms of a pathogen, all right? And we try not to play games with it. It is just, it's got this cloaking ability. It's a lot like HIV in that sense. This latent ability to go under the radar and then late, later create an infection that now our body can't handle. You see what I mean? It just bursts on the scene. It's like an explosion. And so it's like a long fuse. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so you light the fuse when it first comes into your lung, bypasses your immune system, goes undetected, and then all of a sudden it explodes in you. That's the problem with TB. That's the problem with HIV. We don't know yet whether COVID behaves this way or not. We're hoping that it does not, but it looks like it has at least an incubation period, which would be similar to this, an incubation period of maybe eight, 10 to 14 days. And then it, it either gets worse or you get better. Um, the rabies virus is very similar. That's why we haven't been able to develop an effective virus for uh, virus vaccine for rabies, all right? It has a 24 to 28 day incubation period. It moves into our central nervous system and then it just explodes. And that's why if you suspected that you've contracted rabies, immediately we give you a serum with the necessary antibodies because we know if you don't get that within three to four weeks, it's too late. We can't help you. See, that's part of the problem. And so, so again, we wish all these viruses behave the same way, but they don't. Some of them have shorter incubation periods. Others have longer incubation periods in terms of what they then do. So this is novel for us. This is new. We don't know where this is headed. And so, we're getting a better idea by the hour. In other words, while we've been talking, I'm sure there's even more information that the world and the labs are gonna share with us. And, and again, that's dynamic. I think that's interesting, you know? Um, and so again, but it will, be it will have to be solved at this level, but everyone also needs to understand maybe the best we're going to have is hopefully a strong therapeutic like they have for a, uh, HIV you know, a cocktail of drugs that you take on a routine basis for the rest of your life, all right? This, it may be something like that where we, not necessarily for the rest of your life, but during the height of the infection, that you take this therapeutic to try and dampen down the, your immune response temporarily so that you can then not get into one of those hyper states of sensitivity. To the virus. So you talked about antibodies and their shelf life and memory cells. So like, do we know how we get 
antibodies and like memory cells to like remember like those antibodies and to like keep that in our memory? Yeah, the, the, the memory cells are capable of remembering because they've produced receptors for that specific region of that protein. So we call them memory cells because they have receptors that can, when, if they find that molecular geometry, it initiates a binding. So that's what we mean by memory. The memory are the specific receptors on that cell in its membrane that were put there during the construction of that cell so that when that cell is activated by running into these viruses, if it finds that particular region or that protein, it will bind to it and dismantle it. That's how it works. So, and antibodies work the same way. The shape, all right, of that variable region in an antibody. The variable region is the region that's capable of identifying specific but different molecular shapes, molecular geometries. If you have an antibody that's specific to that protein we were talking about earlier, these are just circulating in our interstitial fluid, they're circulating in our blood. Should they bump into one of these viruses and bind to that region, the more of that that happens, you deactivate that virus and loses its ability to be able to bind to a cell and infect. So that's how that works. So whenever you make antibodies, are you, do you also automatically make the same memory cells to work with like those same receptors? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because um, typically the memory cells that are, remember you have to have cells first to build the antibodies. So the B cell line, part of our adaptive immune response, is capable of building, all right, obviously these antibodies or the receptors in the B cell membrane. But then as these B cells clone themselves, then all of those, the results of that cloning process have that same receptor. So now they have a memory. And so when they go out, they'll know exactly what to go after because they, their receptors cue in on the same molecular shape. But remember, a memory cell only has a memory to one molecular shape mm. or geometry. If you want to create an antibody or a B cell line to fend off smallpox, then you have to create a new molecular geometry, a new receptor, a new antibody to recognize the smallpox virus or a portion of it. So, so you basically have memory cells circulating in you from all the various infections where you marshaled an adaptive immune response, right? They're circulating in you in various levels of activity, okay? And so if you're ever exposed to it again, they can go to work right away. So once you're infected with COVID-19, and then your body creates antibodies and you recover. Mm -hmm. um, if you get it again, you should be fine. As long as those antibodies are effective at binding and deactivation through that binding, and as long as you have enough of them at okay. that point in circulation 
to offset any potential infection. You okay. want to ban it down because some are going to get through. Some COVID are going to get into your lungs and they are going to infect. But when those viruses emerge from that cell, you want to have antibodies present to hammer them right away. All right. So that, that's a concentration phenomenon, right? The more that you've had, you've marshaled against that specific virus, if you get infected or exposed to it again, that, should, that infection should be damped down so quickly that your body doesn't respond. So you're talking about um, the innate features of our immune system, um, fever, um, and you're talking about how the antibodies run into um, the different parts of the virus or the protein, I guess, to um, really collapse that protein and the virus. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question is, do we get do we get a fever and do we increase our body temperature to increase these interactions between um, the antibodies and the viruses running into each other? That's a good question. Um, I think that's still left to be resolved. But we know that fever was probably initially maintained and developed in lines of, of animals. Um, that have these, what we call adaptive immune responses, these additional responses, and of course also the more what we call innate response that everybody, in other words, that's a fever is a generalized response, right? So it's not picking out one particular pathogen or one particular virus. It's just you've been infected by a foreign object that your body has deemed foreign. It's now time to marshal a defense. Probably fever more came out of our response to bacterial infections because we know that bacteria are sensitive to changes in temperature. And the reason why they are is because their enzymes are, because enzymes are optimum ranges of temperature. So it's suggested, it's always been suggested that possibly this, that innate response was more in, in response to bacterial infections because they tend to, most of bacteria, have optimum regions at which they operate in this context, infect potentially, right, as a pathogen, so, or a disease-causing organism. And so I, that's more the conventional logic. So we elevate our body temperature, probably more so to ward off or decrease bacterial activity so that the, our, the rest of our immune system has an opportunity to fight and push it down. Because we, we, we don't, in other words, and then ideally, as your body is able to handle that activity and, and damp it down, push it down, okay, then what can then happen is, um, I'm not sure what that, whoops, I lost you. All right, are you still there? Uh -oh. Yeah, yeah, I'm still here. You're good. I'm still good? Okay. All right. So, so the idea is then that it, 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 under these contexts, or in this context, then, all right, fever would damp down bacterial activity, all right, which then gives your body a chance to then attack it in a, in a, in a, in a greater intensity, I guess. But the problem is, 
that's a double-edged sword because our bodies can't withstand high temperatures either. And that's why when you start to experience those higher temperatures, all right, in other words, this can be a problem, problematic, because our cells and our enzymes don't work at those temperatures either. That's why a temperature of 106 can become very problematic, all right, for a human being, as if you've been under it for too long, because then we start being compromised, our cellular processes. So anyway. Yeah, so, but whenever you do increase the temperature in your body, um, doesn't your cells move faster and have more, like they bump into each other more? That's kind of how- yes, Yeah, yeah, that can potentially happen. The kinetics do change, right? And so that may have an element of increasing the probability that these things then encounter each other. And then, in other words, the probability of, of, of an affinity, in other words, being taken advantage of, which is true, which is probably true. Yeah. Because I mean, that's why enzymes, to a certain extent, they have like an optimal temperature to where if you mm -hmm. increase the temperature, they'll have more um, impact with the substrate and have more catalysts happening. Exactly. But also remember that enzymes have an optimum at which they operate. Right, right. right. In other words, that, that curve can slide either way. Yeah. And so if temperatures get too high, certain enzymes and their activity, they become, you know, they start to become denatured, which then are, lessens their ability to optimize their function. So you do have to, you know, it's, you have to be careful there. So talking about fever, um, a thing that everyone takes whenever they have a fever, Advil, Tylenol, household, um, over-the-counter drugs that we've had forever. Um, but I don't know if people actually know what is really happening whenever we do take Tylenol or Advil. Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't know, but I would like to know what is actually happening. Um, how, how does it how is it lowering our fever? What is it doing to us whenever we do take Advil and Tylenol? Okay, so to be, uh, you know, to sort of separate the two, because you actually have to separate the two in terms of what they're actually doing in the body. When you take Advil, all right, Advil, one of its primary functions is it's anti-inflammatory, all right? So it reduces all right, inflammation. And remember, if you can reduce inflammation, you can reduce the innate immune response. And what are some of the innate immune responses? Swelling and fever. Remember, when you develop, when you start to swell, you, all right, those cells around that area begin to secrete different molecules, all right, cytokines. And these then create other cellular responses, such as an increase in body temperature. You see what I mean? So it's this cascade of effects. But if you can reduce inflammation, then those cells are not as prone to release those signaling molecules that then create greater inflammation and then also development of a fever. So that's the idea behind, for example, Advil or Motrin is another you know, brand name that you'll hear. And 
Um, and they're all, those, actually, those two medications are essentially a derivative of ibuprofen. All right, that's where that comes from. But now, when you take Tylenol, all right, this is interesting. Tylenol and sort of aspirin falls into this category as well. What they do is they reduce our sensation of pain. So it's a different application, all right? So, and that can actually, that, in other words, makes us feel better, all right? Because, in other words, pain can be excruciating. So it really depends on what you're trying to do. If you want it, all right, because one would argue, but doesn't inflammation cause pain? And yes, it does. So both can be used in that context. But they're behaving differently at the molecular level, all right? One is masking the sensation of pain, while the other is actually reducing inflammation, which can potentially cause pain. Does that make sense? Yeah, so how, how is it masking the pain? It actually, we're, in some cases, believe it or not, uh, we're not sure yet. <laughs> I know it sounds odd, but we actually aren't sure. So we're just taking it. No, we just know it works. <laughs> Which okay. I think we're in that state with COVID-19 in some regards too, with respect to what we're trying. If it ain't uh, broke, yeah, don't it's, fix it's it. Always, it is still somewhat of a mystery. You know, it's, um, we know that if you can, we know that these particular medications influence, and this is interesting, certain hormone concentrations, all right, in our bodies. And it's, and these hormone concentrations, remember, are antagonistic to each other. For example, one hormone may cause this particular response. The other hormone causes that response to decline or be inhibited. You see what I mean? So they're antagonistic to one another. And it's the belief is that when you take, for example, a Tylenol, that that influences the production of certain hormones, which then influence in the central nervous system, more specifically the spinal column in the brain, the spinal cord in the brain, all right? Decreasing levels of other signaling molecules, all right, which are responsible in greater intensity for the feeling of pain. So if they can reduce those at more or less, for example, the synaptic cleft of an aggregate of neurons, all right, then they can, they, in other words, the sensation of pain is reduced. And so they believe there's a direct connection between the application of this drug and its influence on other signaling molecules in the context of these tissues and organs and the molecules they're using to then give you a sense of pain versus a sense of no pain. Okay. Pretty much what the, the general thought is. But the entire mechanism for how that's working from cell to cell is still somewhat of a gray area. Okay. So what is, um, so whenever I've heard the thing that like if you take a 
like a lot of Advils and like it'll affect your kidneys. So like, what does that talk about? Well, it, it, again, since it's anti-inflammatory, all right, one might think, well, that's not necessarily a bad idea. But if you think about it, when we say something's anti-inflammatory, well, what does that mean? Remember again, what does that actually mean? All right, well, what it means is, is that you're reducing inflammation. Well, what causes inflammation? Accumulation of fluid, all right? So yeah, the most part. All right. And so if we take a lot of Advil and it is anti-inflammatory, then obviously it has an influence on how cells manage water. You see? And so what yeah. is a, an organ in our bodies specifically designed to manage water? The kidney, yeah. Kidneys. And so at the nephron level, all right, high amounts of this particular medication can then potentially influence or somewhat disrupt our management of a primary function of our kidney, which is the management of solute concentrations in our blood and ultimately water concentrations in that same blood. Mm, okay. So these are those side effects you hear about all the time when new drugs are announced and advertised, and then they have this litany of, if you experience this, da -da -da -da. if you experience this, call your doctor right away, that kind of thing. That's where that comes from. Okay. Uh, in, in certain amounts, not necessarily a good thing. So that's why you have to be careful. All right, so we talked about how, like, how complex the body is and everything like that, and how everything has a function. Um, so that kind of brings up the question of the appendix. Like, we, I, the textbook says it's a vestigial structure, but I feel like there's got to be some use for it if we still have it. Um, what do you think? Well, it's always thought of as a vestigial structure, right? Yeah. Historically, that's how everybody learns about the appendix. But remember, the appendix, or otherwise known in its larger form, the cecum, mm -hmm. is incredibly important in herbivores because it helps provide a microflora and a region where um, plant materials, more specifically things like cellulose, in other words, can be broken down, can be actually chemically altered, all right? So the cecum in this context has an incredibly important role. But in animals that typically all right, rely more on what we call a, 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 a meat diet, right? Oftentimes we'll see that that particular structure has been reduced in size. And when we look at it in a human being, we look at it in terms of its overall size and we think, wow, how could that be actually contributing in any way, right? Shape or form, because compared to a functional one, it's incredibly reduced in size. It looks like it's just shrunken down to just about nothing. So early you know, physiologists thought, well, you know, it had a function at one time, maybe when our diets were considerably different than they are today. But you, you got to be really careful about that. All right. Because typically, you know, that's, you know, just changing your diet doesn't necessarily change the functionality of an organ or of an yeah. organ. 
follow me? That, that correlation is not causation. We have to be very, very careful when we do that. And so if we then approach it from the standpoint of, okay, it's, it is considerably smaller in us, it may have been larger at one time. That's hard to say, right? Because that isn't left behind as in typically fossil evidence. But, but this is the reality today. That's what we see. So I, I would say in terms of its function in what we see larger ungulates, herbivores, such as you know, uh, a pig, for example, or cattle or whatever, all right? There, we can understand its function more than we can in a human being. But that being said, remember the cecum, in this case, the appendix, is, has a direct tie to our large intestine, all right? In other words, it's part of it. Mm -hmm. And we have a microflora in that large intestine. And as it turns out, there does seem to be a logic that goes something like this, that our appendix provides, a, in other words, a, a place, a region, where we can maintain the necessary, or I would say necessary is probably a good term, or the needed, right, microflora to restore our large intestine on a routine basis with those bacterial cultures. So there has been some research that supports the idea that it then in this context would not be vestigial. In other words, it's necessary in terms of a possible reservoir then for microflora that, are, that we routinely try and have established in our large intestine. But then someone comes along and says, okay, well, that's fine, that makes sense, but then how come you can have your appendix removed and you seem to be fine? Well, because, in other words, because you can, okay? In other words, that microflora can be restored on a routine basis without the appendix in that context. So then it's sort of, the logic sort of breaks down, right? Because it's sort of that correlation causation thing that if, then, this, you know, that kind of thing. So it is a problem, all right? And that's why books err on the side of, of, of calling it vestigial. Mm -hmm because any way you look at it, or you approach it, you seem to get back to the same place. Yeah, okay. But can we argue that it has completely no function now? Mm, that's tough, that's tough. You know, I don't, I don't, I've never gone that far, okay. but I can see why we would. Okay, well, on the subject of diet, um, and I know um, height, has a lot of genetic factors tied to it, but is, I, I feel like there's a bigger, I feel like diet plays a huge role in height as well. In height? Um, what do you think about that? Well, yes and no. The, there's a, you know, this is when you start getting into these areas of how does this one nutrient or how do these nutrients collectively contribute to a phenotype, right? An expression, in this case, height, okay? The first thing we have to remember is that height is a quantitative trait. And what does that mean? 
It means that from a genetic perspective, it's summative. There are multiple genes that all contribute to one's overall height. All right, and so right up front, if a trait is quantitative, it's hard then to say, well then, you know, diet can influence height because if at the end of the day, we say that the majority of what we see as height is driven by heredity and gene action, then what you eat, when you eat, you know what I mean, should have no effect on that. Yeah. All other things being equal. Right. And what I mean by that is, if you're not starved during your developmental years, you follow me? Then yes, will height be influenced? Most definitely. All right. But all other things being equal, you get what you need while you're growing up. All right. I would argue what more contributes to your height is how that set of genes has been activated in you. And then how all of those proteins that are a result of that activation have interacted with those other variables, such as nutrition, proper nutrition, to get you to that particular growth and adult height. So I think, you know, sometimes it's tempting to say, well, it's a combination of things. Well, remember too, if, if the trait is quantitative, meaning there's more than one gene that contributes to it, remember each one of those genes can have multiple alleles, just like blood type. You see what I mean? Or those genes can be, in other words, regulated through epigenetics. They can be methylated, all right, acetylated. You can literally, in other words, this is why we have to be so careful when we look at traits in general, all right, especially what we call physical traits, because you don't know the backstory behind that. And so we often think, oh, just give them more food and they'll, in other words, they'll grow more. No. All right. Actually, no. It depends a lot on what genes that make up that trait are being activated, what alleles that might be associated with those genes. How are those interacting? All right. So there's a, it gets really complex real fast. Mm, yeah. And so, um, you know, and so I, I, I would caution you there in terms of, of, of the influence that diet has on height. All right. And, and I think only until we know just how many genes are involved and then within the, the, the actual genes themselves, how many potential alleles are involved? Are there other genes that actually influence the expression of those genes? For example, are there epistatic? epistasis effects, where one gene and its protein product can actually regulate the expression of another gene. You see what I mean? Yeah. There's a lot we still don't know, Aaron, about that. So I would, I would argue that, that I would lean more, I would lean more on, the ter- on, on the side of gene action, all other things being equal, assuming everything else went as planned, yeah. than I would diet actually affecting height if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, so we talked about um, Advil and Tylenol already, and um, at least for me, um, 
whenever I do take Advil or Tylenol, it's usually because I, I have a headache or something. Right. Um, so what is a headache? Why is my brain hurting? Why is my head hurting? What is going on in my brain for a headache to happen? Ooh, well, that's another area, a gray area to a certain extent. You know, for example, migraines versus, you know, there are various types of headaches in terms of intensity and their origin. All right. But one of the more common origins is, is literally tension of muscles in the neck and face that they believe sets up, you know, this unusual contraction event, which they say, you know, they believe then sets up this sensation of pain, right? And that's why when you take something that actually reduces that sense of pain, then your headache or the, the intensity, the sense of the intensity of that headache subsides because you're reducing the activation of pain receptor, receptors, all right, that are imagining you having this headache. In other words, making you think you're having a headache. Mm -hmm. all right, so this is another thing that we have to understand. We look at the, ourselves as, for example, you, you know, I didn't mention this earlier, but let's say you're looking you know, I'm, I'm looking at a computer screen, right? I see you, I see other things. But what is actually enabling me to do that is light is reflecting off of all of that and moving back and remember stimulating those, those receptors in my retina, all right, those rod cells, those cone cells. They then are developing, and this is the cool part, they're developing an action potential. Light is not traveling to my brain. Light energy stops at those receptors. The receptor then has the capacity to transform that light energy to a new form of energy called the action potential, electrical energy. That then travels down a conduit to a region in my brain, which then puts a picture together. Okay. What's really cool, what's really cool is then students go, wait a minute, <laughs> are you trying to tell me that the only thing that gets to my brain is action potentials? Think about it. That's it. Light images don't get to your brain. Action potentials get to your brain. Your brain puts you together, puts together what you see. Your brain puts together what you hear. Your brain puts together what you taste. All that gets to the brain from your tongue is action potentials from receptors. Isn't that cool? That's cool. The brain is our world, Aaron, in a really, really cool way. And everybody's like, oh, I've never really thought about it. It's a virtual world. We create a virtual world. The brain is creating your world. And it's really bizarre because we don't think about that. But the same action potential that's moving up my optic nerve right now to my optic lobes is the same action potential that's, potential that's leaving my auditory receptors and moving to auditory domains in my brain to be interpreted either as sound or an image. 
It's our brain that is doing that. But by the way, we still don't know how, which is in some ways a beautiful thing. Yeah. You know, we don't know everything, you know, but it's a fascinating area. That's why the brain right now, I think, is becoming this amazing area of study because you don't think that way. You just think, I see what I see only because your brain has created that from action potentials. That's it. All right. And it's kind of cool when you, when you realize that. And so um, that's where it gets crazy. You know, when you start looking at how the brain actually functions, but it's a beautiful thing. It is an absolutely from a structural and physiological standpoint, the brain is going to be the, the new frontier, you know, um, because we're always looking for new and exciting places to go. A lot of people are going to the brain so, to try and unravel, to try and unravel. What's a memory? What is a memory? Ask somebody, what's a memory? Well, it, it's, 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 uh, it's this thing. It, I, I, you know, when you say, what's your phone number? Oh, it's ba da da da. What is that? Is it an actual number in your brain somewhere and you're retrieving it? No, it's what is it? You see, what is, what's as simple at, or as complex as memory? What's long term versus short term? How are they managed? This is incredible stuff, but we still don't know even how a memory. So when we look at headaches, Headache, headaches are magic, all right? Your brain creates that, okay? And so if we can reduce the amount of action potentials stimulating that region, then we can reduce that sense of pain. And that's why these medications are effective because they reduce inflammation. And if you reduce inflammation, you reduce the stimulation of pain receptors. If you can do that, you can inhibit action potentials. If you inhibit action potentials, you can inhibit pain. So what is causing me, is the pain coming from my neck and face muscles constricting? Yeah, constricting, contracting. They believe. And that's why they often, you know, they'll often use terms like tension. In other words, oftentimes tension will induce this response, which we call a headache. But they still say a lot of the origin of it is the facial and neck muscles and in, in, interacting in terms of contraction events. So it's like kind of like a face cramp. Yeah, so if you could relax, <laughs> all right. You know, essentially what the medications do is get you get those areas to relax to reduce all right and then that reduces the pain response so whenever you do have these facial and neck um, contractions is there less blood flow to the brain i'm that i'm not sure of i would argue um I would say just the reverse. There might even be more because that could even increase blood pressure, which then can influence, we know influences headaches as well. Increased blood pressure in that region. Okay. Um, so increased 
blood pressure, blood flow, I think, or just the reverse. If we, for example, vasodilate that region, all right, maybe we could decrease blood volume. If we decrease blood volume, we could decrease pressure, and that might be, an, um, in other words, if you think about it, just the reverse of that. But I would be just speculating at this point. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, another thing that I was wondering, like, why, like, when we work out, when we work out our muscles, our skeletal muscles, why do we get sore? Like, what is causing that soreness? Yeah, well, it's, it's twofold. In some cases, when you work out in terms of extremes, you're actually damaging the skeletal muscle fiber. All right, you're actually tearing, you're ripping, which obviously creates a soreness, okay? But the other thing that's happening is you are exceeding your muscle fiber, the cells themselves, their ability to metabolize glucose oxidatively. And remember, if that is reduced, then your, your cells will go into what we call a fermentation mode to try and continue to perform work for you, muscle contraction. But in fermentation mode, you produce a lot less ATP, and you also produce in us a substance called, as a, as a byproduct of this fermentation, lactic acid. Lactic, lactic acid to our cells is an irritant. It causes inflammation. And guess what happens when you create inflammation? Immune response? Pain. That's pain. what happens. Okay. Yeah. In fact, the pain will, 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 will subside as the lactic acid is what we call re-metabolized. All right. Um, and then, in other words, the concentration of lactic acid in that region is reduced. The inflammation is reduced. Thus, the pain is reduced. So you're talking about breaking of these muscle fibers and everything to build up muscle. So is that, that soreness, is that our body telling us to stop doing what we're doing? Uh, essentially, in most cases, that's what you should be doing. All right. But remember, too, you have to be careful about building up muscle because you, you're not building up more muscle cells even when you tear. You're simply replacing what you already have. What you're building up is, remember, when you stimulate a muscle cell, it will make more myofibrils internally. If you make more myofibrils, the cell itself has to increase in volume to accommodate that matter. That's what gets larger. You don't make more muscle cells when your muscles, quote unquote, seemingly grow. All right. The cells themselves are getting larger. Okay. So when you tear muscle, it's an important principle. All you're doing is replacing what you destroyed but you're not making more muscle cells. You're actually born, your skeletal muscles, you're actually born with respect to your skeletal muscles with what you're going to have for the rest of your life. But you can increase the overall size of a muscle cell 
by increasing its the contents of that cell. And what increases is myofibrils. And myofibrils contain the contractile units. And the more contractile units you have, the more strength you have in a contraction. It's a one-to-one -one relationship. So that's where that comes from. But that's, again, that initial, you know, when you're, when you're quote unquote exercising and you start to feel that pain, all right, it's primarily because you're, in other words, the muscles themselves in that region that you're asking to perform work at whatever rigor they are being asked to perform, they're losing that ability, probably because they're getting less and less oxygen. Or you're trying to push them beyond what their strength, their actual contractile strength is. And in that case, you then set up a, a tearing possibility. Okay. Or, they go in, or they go into a tetany. So, and they, they stop contracting. And then the next time you contract, you tear them. And that creates the muscle cramp that we typically experience. All right, either on a minor scale or what we call, you often hear people say, I tore a muscle. Well, that's literally what they did. They pulled apart the actual muscles, fibers themselves. They tore them. So I did cross country in high school and long distance running, obviously, every time I ran three or so miles, like I would obviously hurt my calves and such and be sore. So is that, is long distance running and like just exercise in general, whenever you are sore, whenever you're feeling that pain and soreness, is that actually detrimental to your health? It depends on how far you push it, but no, because remember that actually can promote obviously your health, right? Because from a vascular standpoint, your heart gets larger, all right, which is beneficial. All right, arteries and arterioles expand, they get bigger through, remember, activation. So that's beneficial, all right? Also keep in mind that you have different types of muscle fibers that compose a actual skeletal muscle. You have, remember, what's called fast twitch and slow twitch. Those can be further subdivided into what we call aerobic, all right? and glycolytic, okay? So in other words, the idea being, and I, I said it that way to sort of describe a process, all right? But the idea there is when you get into what we call those sort of sub-classifications, glycolytic muscle fibers use glycolysis to supply the ATP they need to perform work, all right? Aerobic, or what we call oxidative, muscle fibers use, all right, the, what we call citric acid, glycolytic citric acid, electron transport and oxidative phosphorylation pathway. All right, what we typically call that oxidative form of cellular respiration. So there are two pathways that our muscle cells will use as fibers to perform work for us. And what's interesting is, is that fast twitch muscle fibers, are composed of both glycolytic and oxidative, all right? And if you stimulate fast twitch muscle fibers, the glycolytic component will morph 
and change into fast twitch, oxidative muscle fibers. So conditioning helps improve your contraction event of skeletal muscles. So it's not detrimental in, from that perspective. All right. So, um, but over, in other words, if you exceed to the point where always your muscle fibers are moving into a glycolytic pathway and a fermentation pathway to get you over the finish line, as long as you are conditioned for that in your body, that's why you do condition over time, then you'll be fine. All right. But just understand that your muscle cells, you're still asking them to perform at optimum, but they're running out of oxygen. You see what I mean? Yeah. And so therefore they're moving into this glycolytic glycolysis, this glycolytic fermentation route, which is still fine. All right. As long as you don't abuse it. Okay. But would you say that like marathons, 20, like 26 miles, like our bodies weren't really made for those types of distances. Yeah, typically, yeah, that's now we're moving to that sort of extreme, right? Where we're really pushing ourselves, but under, but you can, you can condition for, to that because our bodies are amazingly adaptive. That's the whole point. I just gave you one example where, you know, glycolytic muscle fibers can morph into oxidative in fast twitch muscle fibers. That's an adaptation to help offset or to improve your conditioning. So we, we are quite flexible. Our systems are made to, to be somewhat flexible. So yes, there are what we call pushing the limit, right? What is that final limit? But typically your body will tell you that. Okay. All right? you, you know, it will say, no, nope, this is enough. <laughs> and muscles will cramp or they'll tear. You know what I mean? Typically your body is smart enough to let you know, no, Aaron, you pushed us too far. It's time to relax. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so we have these mechanisms in place, right? But so I, you know, it, it, that's the amazing thing about us is that animals can really, through stimulation and, and using these adaptations, uh, these strategies, right? You can move to new heights that you didn't originally think you could. And so that's not necessarily detrimental. But those would certainly be extreme on a routine basis, yes. And that's why as you get older, you're quote unquote, not as good as you used to be. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because we do wear out, ultimately. You know, we don't last forever. Yeah. Right? We don't last forever because tissues and organs and organ systems in our body do not last forever. So there it is. Well, thank you for taking your time out of the day to do this with me. Uh, I really wow. enjoyed it. Yeah, this was cool. Um, I hope that, I know you missed the classroom and teaching. Um, a lot, uh, a lot, probably too much. It's not <laughs> healthy for me right now at all. I'm just trying to, let's see, damp it down, shall we say? Uh -huh. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's been hard, man. Yeah. It's been really hard. Yeah. Yeah. And, but that's okay. You know, you, it's life lessons. So, yeah. yeah. And you guys, it's hard for you guys too, you know?
Um, I've asked some other students and they're saying, I said, so we might be moving to this platform for the fall. How do you feel about that? And they're all, the group I, I worked with last night said, actually, Dr. Ed, we're trying not to think about that. <laughs> Which is, that's fair. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we all understand. We're all in it, right? Yeah. And we're so all. we'll get through it. We'll get yeah. through it. But these are ways to actually move it forward, too. You know, we can still communicate. We can still ask questions. We can still, you know, push that bar, raise that, you know, move that bar up. But, um, but we have to find new ways, new creative ways. And that's what we do. We adapt, right? We yeah. push ourselves to move on, you know? So I'm challenging everybody to move on, to push in new creative ways. Given COVID-19. Given COVID-19. Yeah. We'll look back on it someday and say, you know what? Look what look where we are now. That's true. That's true. Well, okay. I'll let you go. Thank you so All much right. for your time. Well, thank you as well. I enjoyed right. it. Take care. Yep. Me too. too. Yep. Bye bye.